And we think a lot of change can come from sort of mobilizing uh, the people who, you know, are going to likely continue to eat meat for the foreseeable future, but want to make sure that the products that they buy come from, you know, animals raised to a certain level of welfare. It's time for conversations about our food and how it's grown on Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. Well, who could be against conscientious food choices? Something we think about and promoting conscientious food choices is a a target of my guest today. Andrew D. Coriolis. Uh, Andrew, welcome to Farm to Table Talk. Thanks so much for having me, Roger. So, Andrew, you're the executive director of Farm Forward, and you promote conscientious food choices. Why don't you give us the background on that? I'd be glad to. So, Farm Forward's mission is to change the way we raise animals for food. My guess is many of your listeners will know that you know, today, virtually all animals raised for food are raised on industrial factory farms. And that's something that's a very modern change. So just in the last, you know, 40 or 50 years, we've gone from, you know, raising animals for food in the kinds of ways I think most people still imagine, you know, uh, green pastures with animals out on grass with a red barn with an open door, where animals sort of come to and fro, and you've got you know, farms raising a couple different kinds of animals and also maybe row crops to a system where, you know, virtually all animals raised for food in the United States are are done on these large vertically integrated farms where, you know, thousands, tens of thousands, or in some cases, millions of animals are raised in total confinement. So Farm Forward's work is all about trying to promote conscientious food choices that are going to reduce the suffering of animals raised for food. And we promote both changes to the ways that animals are raised for food. And also we encourage both people and institutions, things like schools and hospitals and universities, to shift the kinds of foods that they serve towards more plant-based diets. You know, I'm always interested in how these ideas get launched. Now, at some stage where you or some others feeling like things were heading the wrong direction and it was time to form an organization. Uh, where, where was the beginning that's, on this? Yeah, that's exactly right. So Farm Forward's origin starts uh, 15 plus years ago when two of our board members, one of whom uh, is an author, a guy named Jonathan Saffron Four, and another uh, who is a faculty member at University of San Diego, a guy named Dr. Aaron Gross, got together to work on a book which became uh, titled Eating Animals. And the book is really an investigation by Jonathan, who who wrote the book, uh, into how animals are raised for food. At the time, Jonathan was uh, going through the process of becoming a a parent for the first time. Uh, And like many people uh, who become parents, started asking questions probably for the first time in their lives about how food was produced. And he became very curious about, you know, what kinds of decisions he was going to make uh, for the food that he would serve his his child. 
And through a multi-year process of sort of visiting farms and ranches, of uh, taking tours with the sort of um, highest welfare and most sustainable farmers in America, you know, people, you know, spending time with and learning from activists who were, you know, running animal sanctuaries or who were doing undercover investigations on industrial farms, you know, really came to document this political and economic and agricultural system that's described as factory farming. And the energy from that book, which was a, um, a hugely successful uh, book on the New York Times bestseller list and uh, became, uh, you know, was translated into dozens of languages and multiple editions, um, really created a uh, kind of energy for a new form of activism, uh, an activism uh, that was focused on ending industrial animal farming. Um, you know, in the past, uh, organizations like the People for Ethical Treatment of Animals or, or others had been really focused on uh, promoting animal rights, what's described as animal rights, really groups that believe that animals shouldn't be used for, um, you know, food or fur or entertainment. Um, but there really weren't groups that were focused on this particular practice of industrial animal agriculture. And so Farm Forward really zeroed in there. And our, our thought then and continues to be that there is really a broad constituency in America for changing the way that animals are raised. There's really a broad consensus among consumers and even many in the sort of political space that industrial animal farming is a mistake, that it doesn't align with our moral values, um, that it's dangerous to public health, that it pollutes the environment and contributes to uh, environmental uh, destruction, and that there are better methods of producing food that we should uh, invest in. And so fact, uh, Farm Forward's activism for the last 15 years has really been focused on building a broad constituency among farmers and ranchers, among public health advocates, among consumers, to try and change the way that we raise animals for food. You know, one thing you said that, that kind of caught my attention there, too, is that when we start talking about this area, some of the some of the people that uh, have gone before you, you that have been in this area just were against eating animals, period. And that um, basically it wasn't too, too hard to figure out that they were uh, perhaps vegans really, you know, just thought that uh, drawing attention to these circumstances could cause people to come move away from eating meat or animal products at all. And it sounds like a different road that you're on is trying to identify better ways, uh, maybe draw attention to uh, practices that are uh, are more aligned or more humane. No, I think that's exactly right. Um, you know, I think what we've seen over the last sort of 30 years of activism around you know, animal rights and 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 drawing attention to the suffering of farmed animals is that you know there's really broad agreement, again, among the public that, you know, animals should be treated humanely, that farmed animals, even animals who we are ultimately going to kill for food, should be treated humanely. Um, and the constituency for that is is significant, something like 80% of Americans, um, depending on the poll that we've done or how we've asked the question, 
you know, it, 75, 80%, but it, it's, you know, the vast majority of Americans hold these values. And, you know, that's the constituency that we're hoping to mobilize. You know, whereas the percentage of people in America today who, you know, uh, choose to follow a vegan diet um, or, you know, might self-describe themselves as holding animal rights beliefs is, is much smaller, maybe, um, you know, four to eight percent of Americans. And so, you know, we, we think that there is a lot of power, untapped power in this, you know, what I think is a very large constituency of people who, you know, continue to eat animal products and who seem committed to continuing to eat animal products, but um, whom, you know, are very uncomfortable with the ways that animals are uh, raised for food in America today. And we think a lot of change can come from sort of mobilizing uh, the people who, you know, are going to likely continue to eat meat for the foreseeable future, but want to make sure that the products that they buy come from, you know, animals raised to a certain level of welfare. And, you know, that's really been the focus of our, of our research and our most recent consumer survey that we published just a few weeks ago. Let's talk about that. So what did you discover in the survey? Yeah, so this survey was our, our fourth in a series. And, you know, all of these consumer surveys are aimed at understanding the ways that consumers um, interact with animal welfare labels. We want to understand uh, what kind of support consumers show for animal welfare um, you know, when they get to the grocery store, and we want to understand their expectations of labels like humanely raised, pasture raised, you know, antibiotic free. And, you know, very broadly, our goal is to understand how meat marketing and labeling aligns or doesn't align with consumer expectations, and to gauge the degree to which labels inform or deceive the public. And that's something that we call humane washing. And what we've learned across all of this research is that there's a significant gulf between what consumers expect animal welfare labels to mean and what those labels mean in practice. And our most recent survey you know, really you know, showed that in a bunch of new details, and I'm happy to, to share those details. But the broad arc of this survey, like our previous ones, is to sort of underscore this reality that you know, when you go to the grocery store and you see a wall of eggs or a wall of, you know, meat products that are labeled with things like humanely raised or all natural or antibiotic free or, you know, even organic, um, that those labels generally don't mean the kinds of things that consumers expect them and want them to mean. You know, the other thing that reminds me when you talk about going to the stores, the fact that there are even claims made means that some marketer determined that that would help sell the product. Wouldn't that be fair to say that they, you know, the the reason it's even out there in the first place, so potentially to be confusing, or I think as you're su suggesting, some of it may be really misleading. Somebody, some marketer said, there is a market for this. Uh, we're going to sell more of this or that if we add that description. So there's some level of research that must have taken place before you even had this issue to say, well, there's consumers out there that this is important to them. So let's be sure we put this on our, our packaging because we'll sell more. Is that fair? I think that's exactly right. You know, we believe that the meat industry knows that consumers have high standards 
And they also know that their practices don't currently meet consumer expectations. So instead of you know changing their practices, the meat industry is investing huge amount of resources in you know, marketing and media campaigns and social media influencers and you know sort of other influence efforts to assuage people's legitimate concerns about modern industrial animal farming. You know the, the meat industry's efforts to obfuscate their impacts, you know, on farmed animals, on the environment, um, you know, are ultimately aimed at at doing two things. They're they're aimed at convincing an increasingly skeptical public that they can feel okay buying their products. And two, you know, to avoid broader calls from the public to regulate their industry. You know, and we think that these tactics are, you know, following the kinds of strategies that industries like, you know, the cigarette industry and the fossil fuel industry uh, have followed for the last several decades to downplay their impact. You know, you're based in Portland, aren't you? That's right. And I just saw an article a few weeks ago by uh, Nicholas Kristof, you know, the New York Times, and he grew up in rural Oregon. Are you familiar with that story? Uh, I'm not sure exactly which story you're referring, but I, I know Nicholas has written quite a bit about farmed animal issues in the past. And I think he recently wrote a piece about uh, industrial pig farming. He did. He did. And that's what I was talking, was thinking about because he was referring Mm -hmm. to, and in fact, I just thought it was interesting because he was also in in Oregon and uh, Mm -hmm. um, thinking about what it used to be like when he was growing up and how different it is. And yeah, I mean, I think expressing some concerns. Yeah. I think, you know, Nicholas is, is, um, is often right on the money, you know, and he's speaking from his own experience, his own family's experience growing up on a diversified farm, I believe in sort of central uh, eastern Washington. And I think his experience, you know, would echo the experience of, you know, tens of thousands of American farmers who, you know, less than a generation ago uh, would have, um, you know, raised, again, raised animals in ways that are much more consistent with the public's expectations. So, you know, you might have raised, um, you know, a few dozen or a few hundred hogs at a time, you know, often giving them access to a woodlot or a pasture, you know, feeding them a combination of, you know, grains that were grown on the farm and milled on the farm, plus, you know, maybe kitchen scraps or, you know, scraps from other agricultural operations. Um, you would have been, you know, letting those pigs breed naturally and mother pigs to farrow, you know, sometimes outdoors in these, you know, small little farrowing huts, they're called. Um, and now, you know, pig production is dominated by a small handful of companies, some of which are owned by, you know, international meat conglomerates. You know, there are, the number of hog farmers has you know, decri- declined you know, I don't know exact numbers off the top of my head, but, you know, significantly over the last three decades, while the number of pigs that are raised in America has just continued to increase. And and the way that that has happened is through consolidation, confinement, and through, you know, the growth of these, you know, mega farms. And so, you know, where, you know, an average farm might have raised, again, you know, a few hundred pigs at a time at most, you know, a small hog farm today might rot, might raise 5,000 to 10,000 hogs at a time. And, you know, the reason that the public generally isn't aware of this is because, you know, one, we've had an increasingly urbanized populace. You know, people are moving out of the 
rural areas of America uh, and into cities. And two, because we've, you know, consolidated these operations in sort of tucked away places. You know, these are, you know, places in rural Iowa, and, um, you know, rural North Carolina, or, you know, if you're talking about the dairy industry in, you know, in Texas and arid places like Arizona and New Mexico and rural Idaho. Um, and instead of a, you know, landscape like you would have had in, you know, the last 40 or 50 years where you've got, you know, hundreds of farms, let's say in Southern Wisconsin, where it really like dominates the landscape, you, you see cows everywhere. And, um, you know, every farm's got a couple of cows and, and is contributing milk to a, you know, milk integrator. Now you've just got a few huge industrial players left that are, you know, hidden out somewhere in the desert. And the only time you see them is if you look on, you know, Google satellite or something. And so, you know, I think Nicholas is raising really good points in his most recent piece about pig farming is that, you know, when Americans see the reality of industrial meat production, and he's talking specifically about breeding, you know, mother pigs, breeding pigs, and the conditions that they're raised in, which are particularly cruel, you know, the, the broad summary is that Americans really are uncomfortable with how animals are raised for food today. And I think that's, that's the sort of center center of our research is, you know, understanding what it is consumers want and drawing attention to the, to the reality that, um, you know, what they expect is a long way away from uh, what the reality on the ground is. Well, of course, we've we got a challenge now that uh, more and more people have lived in the cities and they're a long ways from the farm. Uh, 50 years ago or more than that, everyone had a grandpa or an uncle or someone, uh, almost everyone, that could relate to. They've been to a farm. They've seen a farm. They've seen farm animals. And, you know, today, that's just not the case. And so, you know, it seems like it's an extra challenge you know, as you're talking about this, Andrew, is you have to paint a picture for people because they wouldn't know a good farm if they saw it. I mean, they may have some idea of what is this ideal, like you said, the red barn, a white picket fence around the farmhouse and stuff like that. But they aren't out there. They haven't gone out to the farm. They don't have a good basis of comparison. So they're left needing to trust that things are done done right. And boy, that's challenging. If you can't, if you can't go there, if you can't go and see the farm, you're left on seeing what's posted on social media, you know, pro and con. It's tricky. It's something so important to us, what we feed our families and concerns that, you know, the processes are conscientiously uh, applied of all the ways we get food to the table. But again, if you don't have any point of reference and you've never been on a farm, you hardly know farm animals. Uh, they don't teach it in school. What a challenge that is. I think that's exactly right. Yeah, I mean, the it, it, that underscores sort of two things. One, which is the, you know, the, the central role that meat labels play in consumer decision. You know, for most Americans who are buying animal products, you know, the, the label and the marketing around it that they see in the grocery store is probably the only information they're ever exposed to about the ways in which animals might be raised. And so when those labels, when that marketing is either, you know, intentionally deceptive or just very misleading, and, you know, I, I believe that the meat industry, you know, is doing the same kind of consumer surveys that we are to understand, you know, how important these issues are to the public and, um, you know, understands how consumers are interpreting labels like, quote unquote, all natural or humanely raised, you know, we know that they 
uh, the meat industry is able to use these labels to you know mislead the public. It's it's their point of reference to consumers about how animals are raised. And you know, over the last you know decade, we've seen the you know sort of rise of these new you know certifications and supposedly independent labels that are all designed to you know quote unquote give consumers assurances. You know, but in reality, they they often are controlled by the meat industry or by agricultural trade groups and really function simply to market the status quo. And it's an extremely difficult position for consumers. And it's one that we've been engaged in, you know, for more than a decade, um, you know, sort of at every level working, you know, both uh, with certifications, with retailers, with producers um, to try and make these labels as meaningful as possible and ensure that the, you know, certifications that consumers see on meat products come as close as possible to what we believe their expectations are for animal welfare. And unfortunately, the reality is that we've mostly failed in that effort, that most of the labels that consumers see in the grocery store today that say something like animal welfare certified again, in reality, do not meet their expectations. And so part of our effort has been to draw attention to um, you know, this misalignment and encourage the public to be skeptical, to, be, you know, to really investigate deeply whether a brand or a certain certification um, really aligns with their values. And for many consumers, you know, the, the, again, the unfortunate reality is going to be that there might not be any products in their grocery store that actually meet their expectations. And, you know, the, the best option that most consumers have, if they're really concerned about farmed animal welfare, is likely to opt out of those products. You know, some consumers, of course, can, you know, can go to, you know, farmers markets or, you know, sort of premium independent grocery stores that really make an effort to, uh, you know, source products from, local farms that are raising animals in in very high welfare conditions. Um, but those are going to be the minority of shoppers. You know, we know we know that. And and even consumers who are going to places like Whole Foods Market, which is, you know, widely seen as, you know, sort of a leader in natural food, you know, unfortunately, you know, over the over the last, you know, half a decade or so, even Whole Foods has really sort of slid back towards the the median, which is, you know, primarily selling uh, you know, meat, uh, dairy, and eggs from animals raised entirely in confinement, and that uh, you know that's just a difficult reality for consumers. And you know, it's a it's a tough conversation that we have all the time. You know, people reach out to us all the time and ask, "Hey, what should I be buying? I'm going to this grocery store. Are there any options that you know do X and Y?" And you know, un- unfortunately, the answer I have to give most often is is no. There aren't products that meet that. And unfortunately, this label doesn't mean what you think it does. And you know, if you're really concerned about this, you should either probably you know buy fewer of those products or opt out entirely. So it's all about trust, isn't it? I mean, if you're dealing with a farmer that you met at the farmer's market, then you're sizing it up and trusting that uh, you're looking somebody in the eye sometimes. And if they say it's done such and such a way, it's done such and such a way. You believe it. Or you're trusting a brand that you're trusting that the brand is making claims that are honest and they're following through and they're doing all the background checks. And so if they're going to claim something, 
that you know it's true, or you're trusting the store, which is also a brand, that if they're presenting products in their store and identifying such and such a way, that they've in fact can back it up. So you're holding their feet to the fire, aren't you? We're certainly trying, and I'm happy. You know, I, I think you're you're describing the the situation accurately in terms of like what consumers, you know, who, who ultimately consumers have to feel like they can trust in order to give them reliable information. And I, I would just add one, you know, one additional source that I know many many consumers use, which are, you know, the information from advocacy groups like Farm Forward. You know, people go to our website, which is farmforward.com, and they use our label guide. Thousands of people use that every year to learn more about labels and uh, and claims on meat products and to hopefully make uh, more informed choices. Um, you know, but the, the trusting the retailers and trusting the meat brands, that's where I think consumers need to be the most skeptical. And I can give you some examples about why we think that is. So, you know, two years ago, about two years ago, we became concerned that um, companies were, meat companies were making claims about antibiotic-free meat. You know, you see that on tons and tons of products nowadays, uh, antibiotic-free chicken, antibiotic-free beef, et cetera, et cetera. And those claims, you know, we knew those, those claims are not currently, for the vast majority of companies, verified. In other words, Meat companies are are putting that label on their package, but they don't have to do anything to test their meat products in order to get the USDA to give them approval to put that on their label. And so we started to test meat that we purchased from grocery stores to see if it had residue of drugs or other antibiotics. And we found a, a, a beef product that we purchased from Whole Foods um, had a growth-promoting antibiotic in it. And that was just one case. And, and subsequently, after our investigation was released, uh, a paper was published in Science that had looked at antibiotic-free cattle um, and found that something like 25% of antibiotic-free, of cattle labeled as antibiotic-free, were testing positive for medically important antibiotics. And this just underscored this really systemic problem in the cattle supply chain where, you know, producers are able to label their products in a certain way. And because there's no verification, there's either a huge amount of like fraud and deception happening or potentially contamination or, you know, other issues that we don't know about. But the, you know, the summary is that for the millions of consumers who are purchasing, you know, antibiotic-free beef in this case, you can't be sure today that those labels are are actually accurate. And interestingly, in our most recent consumer survey, we we asked people about this, and we asked we we shared with them information about the fact that you know products that were labeled this way were coming back with antibiotic residues, and asked them how that affected their their perspectives of retailers and meat labels. And unsurprisingly. They told us that um, they would really lose trust in retail brands um, or meat brands that were making label claims like antibiotic-free, but weren't verifying them through, you know, really robust testing and other verification methods. And so, you know, right now, 
you know, meat companies and retailers know that they're really the only point of information and trust for consumers. And because historically no one's really been trying to hold their feet to the fire about these claims or testing to ensure that what they're saying is accurate, they could get away with looking the other way or just not verifying the kinds of claims that they wanted to make. And I think ultimately that's because it's cheaper not to verify. You know, it's, it's cheaper not to know. It's cheaper to look the other way. Um, and what that means is that there's probably a lot of deception uh, in the industry today. You know, what also gets tricky is that some of these claims are just just claims that they'll, they'll say something's antibiotic free and it might be a product that never, ever possibly had antibiotics. You know, it's like having caffeine free watermelons or, you know, it just they just stick it on because they uh, somebody feels like, well, that might that might sell. And that's true. But it is true that it might be antibiotic free. But again, uh, it could be they could put that on any kind of food product and claim it's antibiotic free, even though it gives people the impression that that antibiotics were an issue with that product when it never was, never has been. Yeah. So that yep. that all leads yep. to mistrust and puts the pressure again back on the brands, back on back on the stores, and then I guess gives you guys a job to to try to keep drawing attention to this fact where people are fessing up and if they're making a claim they can back it up. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, I wish this weren't weren't my job. <laughs> you know, I, I I would rather be in the business of you know promoting the kind of sort of you know best agricultural practices and the best producers out there. But unfortunately, what, you know, what we've seen, again, over the last sort of decade of working with these certifications and, and labeling issues is that it's a major barrier. This, this, this humane washing is a major barrier to the growth of you know, a more sustainable and humane agricultural system. You know, because there are lots of farmers and ranchers out there who, you know, who are raising animals in the in the ways that consumers want them to be, but they're by and large, you know, sort of shut out from the largest retail and food service markets because, you know, they can't compete on price with other brands that are making roughly the same claims but aren't using nearly as good of practices. So, you know, you can imagine, for example, that raising a a pig uh you know on a on a farm that's got you know a herd of 300 pigs that are mostly on pasture or in deep bedded hoop houses that that's probably more expensive than raising 3000 hogs in a confinement barn yeah and that's true and i think that's an important point to come back to is that the reason that these all these uh, producers have had had to get bigger as they weren't making money. And if in many, many, many years, uh, you could only make $10 a head hog. So if you had a hundred hogs and you were trying to support your family and have that be a big part of it, that's nothing. And you can just about take any of these commodities and look at them and say, well, what drove them to get bigger? And why'd all the small ones go out of business? there just wasn't enough money and if there had been enough money then i think you know consumers would have been paying much higher prices for much of their food so it's a it's a tricky balancing act you know you can't hardly keep from having scale because it's the only way that a lot of these operations have been able to stay in business it's been forced out because they weren't making enough money from selling hogs or chickens or cattle 
Yeah, I, I would challenge the premise of that. I mean, I, I think that, um, you know, most farmers, even the, you know, confinement operators, most of them are still not making money. And, True. you know, I think that's primarily because of consolidation in the industry. That's about, you know, the fact that we have huge vertically integrated monopolies in the agricultural industry. We don't have a competitive market. We don't have, you know, a level playing field where farms can compete. You know, we have, uh, a market dominated by meat companies like Tyson and JBS and Cargill that are routinely <laughs> found to be engaging in anti-competitive behaviors that, you know, are aimed at making it, you know, you know, squeezing every dollar out of, you know, the actual farmers and ranchers who are uh, responsible for uh, raising, raising the animals. And, you know, the USDA policy since Secretary Earl Butts, who said, you know, get big or get out, has been to, um, you know, provide incentives for producers, uh, you know, to grow and to make, a, you know, intentional choices, not to support uh, through policy, you know, small diversified agricultural operations. So, you know, I, you know, and I talked to, I, I talked to, you know, folks who are, you know, former chicken growers who worked for Purdue or Tyson all the time. And many of them, you know, go out of business every year. And a lot of that, you know, bankruptcy, a lot of those farm bankruptcy costs taxpayers money because a lot of those, you know, loans are uh, small business administration backed loans. And so, you know, this is a hugely costly industry to farmers and to, American taxpayers and the beneficiaries are primarily these, you know, meat monopolies. And, you know, we talked about this sort of going back to the hog business for a moment, you know, the, you know, one of the faster growing sectors of the hog industry is the natural hog industry companies like, you know, Nyman Ranch, which, you know, guarantees a minimum floor price for each of their hogs. And they've got a waiting list for, you know, for farmers who want to get into those programs because they're marketing a higher cost or a premium product. Um, but they do a lot to try and guarantee farmers a livable wage, even when they are raising, you know, a smaller, a smaller herd. They're not raising 5,000, you know, uh, pigs at a time. They might be, again, raising a couple hundred. And so, um, you know, we've, we've made choices as a public, um, primarily through not paying attention, but um, you know, to uh, have a policy environment that you know, really incentivizes this kind of consolidation and, and industrialization. And, you know, what, what we're encouraging are for, um, you know, the public to both make individual choices, but also for the public, you know, for a wide variety of reasons to support, you know, local, uh, you know, state and federal efforts to try and you know, reform ag systems to, you know, better promote competition, support family farmers and diversified farming operations and to um, prioritize the kind of agriculture that is focused on, you know, domestic consumption, for example, rather than, you know, growing markets for export. You know, a huge amount of the growth in the factory farm industry in America is about supplying meat abroad. You know, we've seen huge growth in international export of things like chicken and pigs. The largest pig company in America is now owned by a Chinese conglomerate. You know, that's that's not about, um, you know, making sure Americans have affordable food. That's about making sure that Smithfield can make as much money as possible selling, you know, pig meat to China and Mexico and Canada. Um, so, 
you know, it, it's a huge systemic change we need to make, but it really does start with some of these really fundamental questions about what does the public know about animal agriculture? What um, do they expect and what do they want? And if they aren't getting it, which we believe they aren't, you know, how can we, what levers can we pull to uh, motivate both personal and collective change? Well, I, I think those are fair points. And I think especially the concentration, the ownership, there's like four packers that control most of all of it. And, and they have, they control the production. And a lot of times they'll own the pigs that are on the, on the farms. And so those, those are issues that are, you know, they're just, they're really hard to accept those issues. But l- l- let me ask you though, does, do you feel that you, that you can't raise 10,000 or more hogs properly? You have to have a couple hundred to to be able to be the right kind of production. To you know, really ensure a high welfare environment, I I think it's going to be extremely difficult. Let's say, let's just use the example of hogs for a moment to to raise, let's say, ten thousand pigs on a on a single operation in a high welfare environment. You know, there there is a certain amount of sacrifice you make with scale in terms of animal welfare and environmental sustainability. Um, you know, there are definitely ways you can, you can do better or worse. And it's not to say that it's only tiny operations that are, you know, able to offer animals, you know, uh, you know, a life worth living, but it's mostly those kinds of operations. Um, you know, there, there are some of these kinds of farms uh, and farm companies that are sort of in the middle where they, they are at a very large scale raising, you know, in the case of hogs, they're raising millions or in the case of poultry, you know, tens of thousands or tens of millions of chickens a year, um, but are still raising animals on pasture, using healthy genetics, using more traditional husbandry techniques while taking advantage of some of the economies of scale. Um, but there aren't that many of those companies. You know, they're, they're mostly, they're fairly new. They're you know, within the last 10 or 20 years and, and they're growing. Many of them are growing quickly, but are still a small percentage of the market. Um, you know, but I think it, by and large, it's going to be very, very difficult, let's say, to raise, um, you know, a million chickens on a single farm and do that in a way that's, um, you know, not going to cause a huge amount of animal suffering, you know, environmental pollution, you know, increased risks for things like, you know, pandemics and, and antibiotic resistance, et cetera. So there, there really are trade-offs between, um, you know, scale uh, in some ways and or scale in the traditional sense and um, animal welfare and environmental sustainability. And I think we have to, you know, really think critically about what "quote unquote" scale looks like and what's possible, and and then subsequently what our diet uh, should look like. You know, we have a, you know, historic, um, historic anomalous uh, amount of meat consumed per person in America, you know, more than any other country uh, in the world. And you know, I don't, I don't think that you know Americans, let's say even 15 years ago are materially better off. Um, I don't think we're materially better off today than we were 15 years ago, even though we're eating considerably more meat. You know, our health isn't better. Our happiness isn't better. Um, And, you know, the meat industry spends a huge amount of money every year trying to encourage us to eat their products. Um, And, you know, I think we would do well with, you know, eating a lot less meat and and a lot more diversified plant-rich diet and that's going to be much more consistent with the kinds of farming systems that are going to be able to raise animals in higher welfare conditions. 
Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear you can see that, you know, there are some people that can do a good job because I've seen them all size. I've been to some large scale operations that they were just first class. The hogs had plenty of room. They weren't using gestation crates. They were, you know, they were careful about how they were treating them. Uh, it was air conditioned more or less than the buildings themselves. They were kept clean. And I thought, okay, no, this is fine. This is good. And it could be very, really large. And on the other hand, the worst conditions I've ever seen were the opposite that I've been to a, a farm that was really mistreating the animals and they were, they were outside and they were in sheds and they had other kind of issues with them. And it was just terrible. And I wanted to call and report them. So I, yeah. I guess the thing, the point I was trying to make, and I, uh, it, it, maybe it makes it more complicated is that there are, there are good and bad of all sizes and shapes. And, uh, that doesn't simplify uh the job though of of um, wanting to know whether or not they're big or whether or not they're small you know are they doing what they say they're doing are they treating the animals the, the way they are claiming to and that's where you wade into it but it's uh like i say it's tricky i think that's exact yeah i think that's exactly right I mean, you know I, i've had the same experience going into you know small hobby farms that are raising you know, these fast growing Cornish cross birds, let's say, and these chicken tractors, you know, these are birds that are bred to, you know, really be raised in environmental controlled industrial scale barns. They're not meant to be, you know, sitting in wet grass. And the welfare of these animals is terrible. You know, it's just, this is a small operation, but it, you know, the welfare is abysmal. Um, whereas you might be on, you know, an industrial poultry farm that's very well run. I would never call that that farm um, high welfare, I would call it, you know, slightly less bad, um, than conventional operation. Um, and I would say the same for, you know, industrial, um, confinement pig operations. There are definitely ones that are run better and worse. Um, personally, I think it's inconsistent to think that, you know, you can raise, um, let's say a, a thousand pigs in a confinement barn. These are incredibly smart social animals that need a lot of environmental enrichment. Um, and I think, you know, we, we have lots of good research to show us that, you know, those kinds of environments, even when, you know, kept clean and sanitized and climate controlled, still do not, you know, provide a pig with a with a good life. Um, but, uh, you know, I concede your your point entirely that it isn't just a question of scale, you know, small, good, big, bad. Um, mm -hmm. It is a is a more complicated question of understanding, you know, what does this particular species of animal need in order to, you know, live a, a, a good life. Um, if it's a pig, it might need a place to root and, and you know, material to, um, to you know, friable material to, to chew on. It uh, needs to be able to uh, have small enough herds that it can form, you know, uh, social orders. It needs places for, you know, them to be able to retreat and get away from aggressive animals. You know, there's all kinds of individual sort of attributes that we can look at for each species. Um, and I, but there are some broad things I think we can still say, even knowing that each species is different. You know, we can say things like, you know, confinement and industrial scale and high density is not consistent with good welfare. You know, I think that's a, a pretty safe kind of comment. Um, and, you know, same with the, you know, sort of the opposite, that Generally speaking, it's going to be better for animals if they have, you know, access to the outdoors where they can exhibit, you know, uh, species specific kind of natural behaviors like rooting and pecking and dust bathing. Um, and so those are the kinds of um, practices that Farm Forward promotes and encourages. 
So if people want to um, see this study, can they get a copy of this research? Absolutely. Yeah, you can find it on our website, farmforward.com, and you can find it just on the homepage. There's some new information about it. We've written sort of a, a short summary of the research, and um, you can also find a lot of additional information on our website about the work we're doing to advocate for uh, improvements in labels. You know, we're, we're working with the USDA to try and change the requirements around um, what these labels mean and how they're verified. We're uh, working with food companies to try and get them to adopt things like antibiotic testing to ensure that when they market their meat as antibiotic-free, that consumers can really trust those labels. Um, so you can learn more about all of that work on our website, farmforward.com. And if people are wondering what's going to keep you guys busy in the future, what do you see over this next five years? What, what will be your focus? That's a great question. Um, at the Humane Washing campaign that we've been running, it's going to be it's ongoing. It's, it's been going for the last three years, and I suspect it will continue. You know, this is a, uh, a trend that we've seen, let's say, in the climate movement for the last 20 years. You know, just because there's more attention and interest in climate change doesn't mean the fossil fuel industry is, um, you know, throwing up their hands and saying, you're right, we're going to go away. They, they continue to try and... Um, you know, hide and obfuscate their impacts on climate change. I think the meat industry will do the same. And so trying to hold the meat industry accountable to the claims they're making and ensure that the public have tools to, um, you know, get good information and make good choices is going to continue to be a part of our work. Uh, we're also doing some work right now on uh, on pandemics and zoonotic pandemics. As much as I don't think anybody wants to continue to talk about or think about uh, pandemics, um, there is a you know a serious and growing outbreak of bird flu in, all over the world, and uh, it's very clear that 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 comes from uh, industrial poultry farming. And we really got to think carefully about how we're going to uh, prepare for that risk, and uh, ideally. Um, change poultry farming in ways that are going to reduce our risk of a another human pandemic. Uh, so I think that work is going to take up quite a bit of our time over the next couple of years. And, and then our ongoing uh, work consulting with, um, with foundations and with non-government organizations and with government uh, to try and get more people involved and engaged in the work of transforming our food and farming system towards one that is more humane, sustainable, um, and consistent with a livable future. I, mean, I think the general call I would have to consumers is um, be skeptical, um, learn more about labels. And if you're um, you know, interested to, to really find labels and products that are aligned with your values, you can go to our website, farmforward.com uh, slash issues slash animal-product-labeling, and you can look at our label guide, which has got sort of in-depth information about all of the certifications and claims that you're going to see in grocery stores um, and sort of give you our opinions about how those uh, products likely do or do not meet your expectations and values. Well, Andrew, thanks for being on Farm to Table Talk. Roger, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks so much for having me.
You've been listening to Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. 